Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. Welcome, brothers and sisters, to a day of worship and a time together in God's Word together. Please grab your Bibles if you don't have them yet, and let's start together in prayer. Dear Holy God, the one who is set apart over all of the earth and over all of humanity, holy and righteous, the Lord alone is God. The Lord O Israel, is one. Let us remember your righteousness. Let us remember your holiness. Let us remember that you are the one who gives the law to men, that you are the one who sets forth your command, your commandments, and that we as men and women are to follow them as the people of God, to actively submit ourselves to your authority. And that when you set forth a command, that we follow it to the letter and with our heart, and to not forsake mercy and grace in the example of our Lord. And I pray all of this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open with me folks, to Genesis chapter 4, and starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's interesting here, we see the tender, loving nature of Almighty God. In verse 6, asking Cain why he's angry. Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? Again, he comes with a question, gentleness. This is how God approaches in personal relationship. This is how we are to approach a fellow believer, our spouse, our girlfriend or boyfriend in 
a personal relationship with gentleness and respect. And then we let them respond. We don't come overbearing. We don't come dominant or with a dominant position or a dominant mindset. No, we approach them in gentleness and we ask questions to know their thoughts, to know their motivations, to know their purposes. And we, what we see here is Cain did not offer something acceptable, something pleasing to the Lord. Was it simply that it was fruit where his brother Abel brought an animal sacrifice? A sheep from the flock with its fat portions, it says? Well, we know that this is foreshadowing of the animal sacrifice that God set forth uh, not too far in the future here in Genesis and then in Exodus and throughout the Torah. But it may not be as simple as just the fact that it was fruit versus sheep. So let's pause and, and step back real quick. Adam and Eve. This has taken the predominant amount of scripture in chapters two and three is the story of Adam and Eve after they were created with forethought and with the planning that God had at the end of chapter one of Genesis. And God brought the two together. There was Adam, which God created individually as an adult, and then he took the rib, he caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, and then he took the rib, one rib, from Adam, and he created Eve. And scripture says that God brought the woman to the man. And then it says that they were married, that she was his wife. And the Bible says in another area that what God has joined together, let man not separate. So what we have is a very intentional union from God to give glory to God. This is what we have. We have Adam and we have Eve individual before God, and we have Adam and Eve together, one unit before God. Now, the ideal the whole concept, the mindset, the purpose, the plan is that this unit, this bringing together in marriage and today in marriage, that you would be of one mindset with your spouse in worship and obedience before the Lord. And therefore, by doing life together, you can also be an encouragement to one another and help and shoulder and carry each other's burdens. This is the language that is described in the first part of Genesis is that she would be a helper to Adam. There's also the language of a yoke that is used with two livestock that joins them together at the shoulder, side by side, to carry the load and that they can do it better together. It was not good that man should be alone, so God created a helper for him. She is not subservient to him. He's not subservient to her. In the hierarchy that God created, yes, it is God, and then it is man over his household. So a man in headship over or responsibility over his wife. 
but otherwise she's not subservient to him. See, the beautiful aspect of what God created in this is that there is a great weight and responsibility before God in the position of the man in marriage. So again, he is not to be domineering or have a dominant mindset or attitude at any time. He is to lead his wife in gentleness and respect, and yes, with sacrificial leadership and love and holiness. Because God is holy, he calls us to be holy. So it is a man's responsibility to lead his wife in holiness. I think a lot of the concern today about women with men in marriage, biblically speaking, is this idea in our culture that men are domineering. Therefore, a wife should not submit to her husband as to the Lord, but scripture says she should as long as he is leading her in holiness and righteousness and in godliness. See, if a man is sinning, she is not to follow him into that. His wife is not to follow him into sin, and he is not to follow her into sin. This is the big example that we see in Genesis 3. He followed her into sin, she followed him into sin, because they were both right there with Satan at the temptation at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and with the fruit which God prohibited. This was the commandment, and they both followed each other into sin. And this is the problem. Because it was rebellion against God. And we are not to follow anyone into sin, spouse or not. Our call is to be holy as God is holy. So will Adam and Eve's children learn from this? Will they repeat the same sin or will they choose obedience before God? And as we look at Cain and Abel, so too let's remember that men and women are created in the image and after the likeness of God, and therefore they're absolutely different than anything else in all creation. And people are eternal. One way or another, people are eternal. Whether they submit their lives to God, believe in Jesus Christ that he died for their sin and was resurrected to the right hand of God the Father for all eternity, and therefore they too will be with God for all eternity, or whether an individual refuses God, doesn't believe in God, never believes in God, and then goes somewhere else. For eternity goes to hell for eternity. Humans are eternal. Therefore, God, God cares, excuse me, a lot about humanity. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life in Jesus Christ. But there is free will in that. There is a choice in that. And what will men choose? Something else here from the beginning. Eve confesses. Let's look at this. She says in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, that Eve conceived and bore Cain, saying, she said it, she proclaimed it, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. 
So she knows that it's not just herself that brought forth Cain. That the Lord is her help. Her helper. The one who enables life. The one who created life. When Eve was created, she knows she was created by God. She knows this. She walked with God and spoke with God in the Garden of Eden. And God was her teacher and God was her God. And I'm quite sure that as she knew the commandment that God had given specifically to Adam before her creation, that she also knew God created her. And she knew God created Adam. Therefore, she now, instead of an act of rebellion against God, like at the tree of the knowledge, excuse me, at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where she and Adam took of the forbidden fruit, ate in opposition to God, in rebellion to God, she now proclaims worship to God. See, we worship God when we say what is true about God. She said that she has gotten a man, her son, with the help of the Lord. And that is true. For God is the one who gave the gift. God is the one who gave her her son and Adam's son. And then with Abel, and he did it again, and God did it again. Because children are a gift from the Lord. Because humans get into this default mindset where I think we kind of ebb back and forth between this. And we think that God has done all of this. Therefore, I'm in the place that I am today. And then we get sidetracked and we think, I have done all of these things over here. And that's why I'm at the place that I am today. Because I worked harder than I ever have before. Because I did it all on my own. No man can do nothing if not for the enablement and the power and the energy and the mind and the heart that God supplies. See, God is the giver of life. If you have done anything good in your life, it is God who has given you that ability. God has given you the strength. God has given you the mindset. Perhaps God has even carved out that path before you to walk in that path for that purpose, for that thing, whether that's work or whether that's a lifelong pursuit or whether that's a hobby or whether that's charity, whatever it is, God is the one who gives all good gifts. Every good and perfect gift is from above, James says. The brother of Jesus, he would know. Let's look at uh, comparatives and contrast points here with their two sons. Scripture says in verse 2, Abel was a keeper of sheep. He was a shepherd and Cain, a worker of the ground. Does this mean that agricultural work is bad? Does this mean that gardening is bad? No, obviously. God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. They were workers of the ground. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. What's interesting here is I see a contrast already from... Just a few verses before, 
in Adam's curse, Genesis 3, where God says to Adam at verse 19, excuse me, let me back up to verse 18, thorns and thistles, the ground shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread, he says to Adam, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for your dust, and to dust you shall return. I see a very barren landscape before Adam to work and work and work and work the ground to bring forth any good food. And then we see here that Cain was a worker of the ground, and in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now, obviously, a fair amount of time has passed to not only when Cain was born, but till he was raised to be old enough to bring the Lord an offering. So perhaps they were able to cultivate it to produce good fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Two things I see here. The Bible speaks repeatedly of the importance of bringing the firstborn, or you will also be familiar with the language, a lamb without spot or blemish, or sheep without spot or blemish, or a ram without spot or blemish. The Lord is very particular there, but it also testifies to what's in the mind and the heart of the giver and of their fat portions. Anyone who eats a fair amount of steak or a small amount of steak will know that the fat gives extra flavor to the meat. And as you continue to read in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and you read the law, you see that the fat portions, that the food is a pleasing aroma to the Lord when it's offered in a sacrifice which God dictates to the people and then is offered to God. And it says that it is a pleasing aroma to God. So this fat portion, this firstborn of the flock, already speaks to the nature of the sacrifice that Abel brought to the Lord. So let's look at the comparatives as a list side by side. The work, the nature of the work between them. Cain worked the ground. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. The offering. Cain brought fruit of the ground. Abel brought firstborn of the flock and the fat portions, as mentioned. And then God's response. Let's read this. Continuing in verse 4, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And what was man's response? So Cain was angry. Scripture says here in the ESV that he was very angry. And then his face fell. Two emotions here, as I see it. Obviously, very angry. That's specific. That's direct. And his face fell. Seems like worldly sorrow to me. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? Interesting that the Lord doesn't leave it there. He asks another question. If you do well, which implies he did not, will you not be accepted? 
The Lord is slow to anger, folks. The Lord is very patient and very loving. He doesn't write Cain off with a bad offering because that is evidence, evidently what that was. He says, will you not be accepted? That is a loving father to his child reaching out his hand to him and saying, it seems like God has already instructed them in a way. I know it's not directly in scripture here, but with this type of conversation, with this language, if you do well, will you not be accepted? This seems like the Lord has already given some instruction for offerings, for sacrifices to either Adam and Eve and or to Cain and Abel directly, that there was an expectation. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. This is almost very similar to a commandment, is it not? In chapter 2, the Lord makes the commandment and then he describes the consequence for disobeying the commandment. The Lord is setting forth here to Cain again his expectation. If you do, if you do well, will you not be accepted? This is the expectation that you would do well, so you will be accepted in my sight. And if you do not do well, here's the consequence. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. He's telling Cain, sin is not arbitrary. Sin is not aloof. Sin is not disinterested. Sin's desire is for you. He's describing the method and the mentality and the intentions of Satan. We saw it in chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. God knows Satan explicitly. He knows how he works through and through to his very core. Sin is of Satan. And he says, sin is crouching at the door. And you must, you must rule over it. What does this mean? This means you must be very intentional regarding sin. God is reiterating to the next generation, the second, the second generation of mankind. You had to think that through for a second. You had Adam and Eve. This these two are their children, Abel and Cain, and specifically he's calling out Cain in conversation. You did not do well, but if you do well, will you not be accepted? And sin is crouching to have you. Basically, what are you going to do about that? I'm giving you the opportunity. I'm giving you the way to life. Follow me. And that you must rule over it. What do we know about offerings in general? You know, I talked a little bit about the fruit of the ground that Cain brought. Was it specifically bad that it was fruit? Perhaps not. Perhaps. What kind of fruit offering would you bring if you brought fruit offering to the Lord? We also do not know if the Lord specifically called out what type of offering to bring to the Lord. And if he said no fruit, then the fruit was already disobedient. But we don't know this. So I would say if you brought a fruit offering to the Lord, what type of and how much in abundance, like what quantity of fruit would you bring to the Lord? Any area of your life, if you could bring anything to the Lord, 
what would you bring to the Lord? How much would you bring to the Lord? And what portion of that would you bring to the Lord? We see with Abel's portion, he didn't bring the last born. He didn't bring the one that I would assume had spots or blemishes. We didn't, he didn't bring the one that had no fat. He brought the firstborn of the flock and its fat portions to the Lord. The firstborn, folks, is seen as, in, in so many ways, the greatest of the lot. Whether it is the firstborn animal of the flock in sacrifice, or it is the firstborn son, which is to inherit the Jewish estate, the Hebrew estate for the family, and to carry on the name and to carry on the legacy of the family, it is the firstborn. When you bring a sacrifice, you bring the firstborn. Why? It shows God the value of the sacrifice that you're bringing to him. It's not less than. It's greater than the others. So this is why the firstborn. But with offerings, it's always important to keep in mind the posture and the heart of the giver. You can come to the Lord, you could bring a very expensive cash gift to your church, but if your heart's not in the right place before the Lord, I think the Lord has no regard for that. Because God cares about the heart, and God cares about the posture. What do I mean by posture? Are we on our knees before the Lord? Are we humbling ourselves before the Lord? This is the other thing that I don't get the very strong impression was present with Cain in his offering before the Lord. Let's read this again. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And the Lord, for Cain and his offering, had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. I get the strong impression his posture before the Lord wasn't right. What we know in chapter 3 is Adam and Eve's posture before the Lord at multiple times wasn't right. Throughout chapter 3 wasn't right. From the time that they sinned before Satan at the forbidden tree in the garden, to the point after sin, when they hid from God in the garden. They knew God. They knew God was omnipresent. They knew he was the creator of all things. So they knew, realistically, they could not hide from him, but still they were in shame and hid from him. And then they waited for God to basically reach out and find them before they responded. That's not a contrite heart that is running to your Lord after your sin to plead for forgiveness and say, it was me. I sinned against you. It was my choice, and I'm the only one to blame. That's not how Adam and Eve responded in chapter 3. 
I also think that offerings have to do with the richness of the gift. Richness, not necessarily wealth, but richness. You could think of it in the food world as savory or food that has a rich taste to it, whatever that is, sweet, tangy, or like meat that's very dense and has a lot of flavor, whatever it is. There's salads that have this as well. You know, it is the aspects of the offering. Are you bringing something rich to God? You think about the story that we all grew up with, with the story of the three wise men, right? It doesn't name how many wise men, actually, in the biblical story. Oh, and they weren't there at the birth of Christ, like we see with a lot of nativities and in, I'll say, extra biblical uh, storytelling of the birth of Christ. This was years after the fact. But the ones who are named brought to our Lord gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All of these gifts were very precious. Gold obviously had incredible value, financial value. But frankincense and myrrh, a little bit different, but still I would describe as rich. And they both have very strong scent. What type of offering do you bring to the Lord? And I'm not just saying give to your church with a tithe, with a financial contribution, though that is good. And I do believe that that is biblical and that should be the primary and the first place where we give, of, give financially to the Lord is through our local church. But the richness, the value, not the, not the financial value, the firstborn of the sheep, of the livestock, what are we bringing to the Lord? I also see here at the start of chapter four, the Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. Interesting to me and possibly unrelated to any of this is the, this is the first mention of fruit since fruit in the garden. And obviously there were a lot of fruit trees in the garden, which God, has, God had created for Adam and Eve to enjoy in abundance before the fall, which were fruit. They also took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was prohibited by God in the commandment, disobeying God by eating of the fruit. And now we see Cain brings an offering of the fruit. Related, unrelated, not sure. Or could it be that God would have been glorified in Cain's offering of the fruit if it had been given with a different heart, with a different posture? Again, not knowing specifically if God gave them an offering commandment or a specific guideline for how offerings were to take place, I would say Likely, yes. If his heart was different, if his posture was different, think about this. When you come before the Lord in prayer, or when you come before the Lord to give a gift in, in any way, what is God seeking most in that moment? 
God is the creator of all things. He dwells outside of time. He's created all the planets and all the stars and all the water and all the air and all the atmosphere and all the light and all the darkness that exists everywhere. Does he need $10,000? Does he need $100,000? Does he need $100 trillion? Does he need an animal sacrifice because he's without it and he would therefore need it in theory. No, God does not need any of these things. But God has a relationship with us. And God wants us to be more like him, more in his image, more like Jesus Christ, to think like him, to act like him, to speak like him. God is the greatest giver of all givers. God wants us to give like him. God wants us to give of ourselves with the mindset and a heart and a purpose that's placed outside of ourselves, that's placed on him. Jesus summarized the law and the prophets in saying, worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest commandment is like the first to love your neighbor as yourself. So when we give of ourselves or the things that we have, we are living in the example of Christ. We are living in the example of God the Father and the richness and the sacrifice that God made, that Jesus made when he came to earth on our behalf to die on a cross for our sins, to take on our nature to limit himself in so many ways. He chose to limit himself. He didn't have to. He had all the ability and all the power and all the control outside of this world, let alone inside of this world. And he chose to, to show us the way to the Father. And let's look at examples of offerings. This is ahead of Genesis now. But we see God's acceptance when God designates what type of offering he requires of his people many times throughout the book of Exodus. For example, here in Exodus 29, 18, when God says to, quote, burn the whole ram on the altar, it is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. So sure, it could be allegorical in the pleasing aroma language. But I also think as God is omnipresent, that he's present among his people when they're obedient to him, when they gather in his name, that he also appreciated the actual physical aroma of the sacrifices that he described as a pleasing aroma. And this is not unlike humans when we smell food that we are cooking or baking or grilling, the scripture says here that it was a burned sacrifice, a burnt sacrifice. God created our senses. We're sense-driven people. And I think the primary point, though, that God designates the offering and he is most pleased when we follow him in offering what he said to offer in the way that he said to offer it. We see this throughout the Old Testament. And today, the offerings are a little bit different. 
Also, when the people of Israel were bringing of their wealth as contributions for the new tabernacle. This is in Exodus 35. And of course, a lot of this wealth, folks, they had when they, Scripture says, they plundered the Egyptians. But really, God compelled the Egyptian people to give up their wealth, to give it to the people of Israel because of all the plagues in Egypt. And when it was the death of the firstborn, the final plague that drove Pharaoh to letting the people go, as they had held the people of Israel in slavery and driven them very hard, it was a very rough life. God also delivered to them the wealth of the Egyptians. We pick this up in Exodus 35, 22. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all jewelry, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. You can give of your wealth in many ways to the Lord. And the people of Israel exemplify that as God called them to do this, they also obeyed God in this. But the people of Israel were obedient in the wandering in the desert in this way and at other times, giving to the Lord as the Lord set forth they should give, that they ought to give. And then after hundreds of years of the back and forth relationship that Israel had with God, and it was very back and forth, obedience, disobedience, 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 obedience. The people of Israel struggled with propriety, folks. They struggled with bloodshed. They struggled with proper sacrifices to God, even though God had set that forth for them. The priesthood, they struggled with even seeking God or caring for God a lot of the time. And he drew a line in the sand here in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Through the prophet Hosea, God said, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. See, the people were so disobedient and probably because they had been disobedient for, low, for so long, they became, their thinking was maligned, confused, but I think probably maligned. He says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God had set up the propriety of burnt offerings and all these different offerings to offer to the Lord throughout the law. And God said, you're missing the point. These offerings and the forgiveness of sin does require bloodshed, but these offerings are about loving me, about seeking me, about pursuing me. In Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
This is also something important about offerings. It's interesting. He doesn't say here, if you're at the altar and you remembered that you have something against your brother. Huh. No, he says that your brother has something against you. Then you need to go and be reconciled first. Jesus spoke repeatedly on this, actually, saying not to let the sun go down on your anger or let the sun go down. In other words, take care of it today. If there's dissension, if there's conflict in your marriage or in a personal relationship in your life, do everything you can in gentleness and respect to bring reconciliation today. Because we need to have our hearts right before each other before we pursue the Lord, before we seek the Lord. That's not a prerequisite and it's not exclusive. But God is saying, it's kind of like I said, when Jesus summarized the law and the prophets, worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, these two are united. They're tied together. He said the second command is like it after he said the first. That because we love God, we can love our neighbor. It is easy for us to love our neighbor because we love God. And as we show love and gentleness and respect to our neighbor, we ought also show love and gentleness and respect to our Lord. See, they're connected. Your neighbor is made in the image and after the likeness of God. Your friend is made in the image and after the likeness of God. Your spouse is made in the image and after the likeness of God. And therefore, we need to see them in light of this because it gives glory to God and because we are God's representation on the earth to show God's love to them. Let's look at another section of scripture here. This is a similar story to the one I just quoted, though a different telling of it in Mark 12, starting in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. What were they disputing? This was Jesus and some others. Regarding the question of if humans will still be married in heaven to their spouses or not. That was the topic. And they saw that Jesus answered them well. One of the scribes asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That to love him with all your heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And how about Ephesians 5, starting at verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. 
This, of course, is not fragrant in the way that I described livestock offering before. The pleasing aroma to God means God's confirmation of the sacrifice. That means God's approval of the sacrifice. So another reading of verse 2 here in Ephesians 5 would be, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us an approved offering and sacrifice to God. God the Father knew it would require a sacrifice for sin. He established it in the law that it would start with an animal sacrifice, and that would be a foreshadowing of the one who was to come to take all sins away, so there would not need to be another sacrifice. And that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. And from Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 5. The author of Hebrews says, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O Lord. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offering and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Wherever there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Folks, Christ became the sacrifice for all time for the forgiveness of sins. Christ's example shows us the level of devotion and sacrifice that God requires of every single one of us. Not necessarily in the laying down of our physical death as Christ did, though many Christians are persecuted to the point of death, but in a way of willing sacrifice by sacrificing everything in our lives to God. Not one thing, not everything but one thing, everything. We must have the mindset of sacrificing all of our lives to God. All of our lives. 
every single part. Don't compartmentalize and give God certain areas and not others. Because God says you're holding something back. God says sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. See, if you let sin in and you keep sin in, its desire is to have you, Genesis 4. But you must rule over it. You must hate sin. Love God, hate sin. And this will absolutely impact how we view giving to God or what we call an offering. Our offering ought to be reflective of our personal relationship with God and how much we value God in my life, in your life. If you were given the opportunity to bring an offering to God, if you were bringing a birthday gift to God, not that God has a birthday, I'm just saying, if you're to bring a Christmas gift to God, let's say, what would you bring him? Would it be rich? Would it have the richness? What's your posture and heart before the Lord? Let's pray. Wonderful, wonderful God. The one who sees and knows all things, the one who created us, the one who knows our hearts and knows our minds. Teach us and lead us that we might take our instruction from you, that we might learn how to be in a personal relationship with you in a loving and gentle and respectful way. That we would not take our cues from the world, that we would not take our cues from our experience in relationship, no. But that we would take our cues from your instruction, from your love, from your generosity, from the, the gift and the life and the death and the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who did everything on our behalf and took care of the sin problem on our behalf. It was more generous than anything that we could comprehend, anything we know on earth, anything we could imagine. You were so good and so loving. Teach us what it means to bring an acceptable offering to you. For the glory of your name, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in Genesis chapter 4.